The following audio is from a sermon series entitled King Jesus, studying the life and work of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from the book of Mark, chapter 15, verses 16 through 32. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him out of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them, to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. This is the word of the Lord. So we have been a year and a half now just about in the gospel of Mark. We've been going verse by verse through the gospel. We are now in chapter 15 uh, and we start um, in verse 16. So if you've got your Bible, open it up. Sacred City has an app. If you've got a smartphone, you can open up your smartphone uh, hit the Sacred City app, and our, our stuff will show up right there, or the Bible app, you can find that. And uh, in the 40 days leading up to Good Friday and Easter, the church celebrates a season called Lent. I already said that. It's a season of extended focus on our sinful, our mortality, and Jesus' work on the cross. And it's just perfect how in God's sovereignty, he kind of aligned this preaching schedule up. So now, the last three weeks going into Good Friday, we are here in Mark 15, where we're studying in depth uh, the death of Jesus Christ. Uh, and today we're going to, as the song said, we're going to survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. And what we're going to find there, listen to this, is going to change us one way or another. It will move us and change us today. That is, if you let it. See, it's this what we're going to study this morning will absolutely change you in one way or another if you really engage with it. And now listen, I know that's tough. Some of you right now are sitting and you're just thinking about what's coming next. You're thinking about what's going to happen later on today. You're thinking about going back to work tomorrow. You're thinking about how do I maximize my relaxation in the next few hours that I have left on my weekend. And so it's a challenge for you this morning, and, and, and I'm try, trying, to, trying to challenge you that if you really engage with this this morning, if you really think, if you really bring it into you today, it's going to change you in one way or another. Now listen, for some of us that's good, for some of us that's bad, because it's going to 
either harden you, what you're going to hear this morning, it's going to make you meaner and more self-righteous, more power hungry and boastful and willing to step on people to accomplish your desires in life, more about yourself, or it will soften you. It has the power to melt you and make you more empathetic, more compassionate, more willing to forgive and willing to give up the control of your life for the sake of others. The only way for you to walk out of this gathering this morning the same is if you refuse to think, if you refuse to feel, if you refuse to really engage with what we're studying this morning. So I appeal to you, please listen, think, feel, engage, even ask God to help you do that this morning. That's my prayer. This morning, we're going to see the suffering of Jesus, and we're really going to see Jesus suffered in three ways. Uh, We see him suffering physically, we see him suffering mentally, and we see him suffering emotionally. And then next week, we're going to see the greatest suffering of all, Jesus suffering spiritually. And all of this suffering is kind of woven together over the next few paragraphs of Scripture to show us kind of how Jesus suffered, uh, to show us why Jesus suffered, and then to show us specifically what Jesus' suffering can do to us if we really feel it, if we really let it, if we really engage with it. So that's my kind of outline this morning, how Jesus suffered, why Jesus suffered, and then what Jesus' suffering can do to us if we really engage with it. So uh, I make no apologies that my sermon, uh, I doubt, will be very peppy. I doubt will be have much many jokes in it. Um, it's hard to joke about what we just read this morning, the crucifixion of Jesus. So let me go ahead and jump in with verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him and they let him out to crucify him. So let's first look at how Jesus suffered. This part is the easiest for us to verify and yet the hardest really to talk about. How Jesus suffered is a historical fact. The way that Jesus died has been written about and testified to in many places outside of the Bible, and it is one of the most brutal ways for a person to die. The Roman military were experts in killing, but they knew the real power in capital punishment wasn't just the fear of death. It was the fear of being publicly shamed and humiliated to be looked at as a curse by the people. And so they became really the worst version of themselves. They let their uh, their wicked imaginations go down to the dark corners of their soul. And there they really perfected this craft of killing and crucifixion. They were brutal and humiliating to strike absolute fear in the hearts of anyone who watched. And so crucifixion was done in public for anyone to see. And we saw last week that crucifixion actually began with this thing called scourging. 
And scourging was a beating with a leather whip that had many tails on it. The tails were tied with pieces of bone and glass and metal so that the, when the whip made contact with the flesh, it would sink in and then it would rip away the flesh as it was pulled back. Scourging oftentimes led to the person's death. It would leave their bones exposed and their entrails open to air and they died in a pool of their own blood. Many times the person being crucified wouldn't even make it to the cross because this beating was so brutal. And we saw last week that this was just the beginning for Jesus. After this, we see in verse 16 that they led him away into the governor's headquarters and they called a whole battalion of soldiers. That's 600 soldiers. 600 Roman soldiers are brought in to really to torture Jesus. They surround him. They're laughing. They're shouting. Think about the fear. 600 experts in torture are circling around you and the the body heat begins to be stifling and you you can hear their footsteps and you can hear them laughing and you can hear just the, you can really feel the energy that's in the room, the evil that's in the room, the, 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 the amount of volume of their cheers that are in the room. It's just echoing in your head and the fear is crippling. And they begin to take off, one of them takes off his cloak, his Roman's cloak, and he drapes it over Jesus, his flesh-shredded body now, and now this scratchy cloak is now pressing upon his his shredded flesh. Then they twist together this crown of thorns, and they press it deep into his scalp. This is a crown for King Jesus, they say. And they laugh at him and they spit on him and they mock him. And they began to hit him in the head with this reed. It's a long, slender, yet brutally hard piece of wood that would drive the thorns deeper into his head. And that would leave great welts upon his already torn flesh. And as they did this, others were bowing and kneeling and mock homage to this great king. And just in this second, I want us, if this was a movie, this would be where you would have a flashback. And a flashback to several hundred years early where the prophet Isaiah says of the suffering servant that would come, the Messiah that would come. He says in Isaiah 56, I gave my back to those who would strike and my cheeks to those who would pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Jesus is fulfilling these words in this moment. And then this kind of horrible, catastrophic scene comes to a brutal end. They lead him out to crucify him. Now, before we we continue, I know we've got this mental image of what crucifixion is. Most of us do. Um, But we need to ask ourselves, what is crucifixion? Now, crucifixion, crucifixion was a capital punishment, the way of death, of humiliation, um, invented by the Persians about 500 years before the days of Jesus. And it was even, it was used, it was in practice until 300 AD when the Roman uh, Emperor Constantine outlawed it. That's roughly, you know, between 700 and 800 years that crucifixion was practiced. And by the time of Jesus, 
this death by crucifixion had been perfected. They had made an art, a gross, despicable art of it. In the words of the Jewish historian Josephus, it was the most, this is quote, the most wretched of deaths. Crucifixion was so painful that a new word was invented to describe it. The word excruciating literally means from the cross. The Greek philosopher Cicero, this is what he said, quote, the mere name of the cross should be far removed, not only from the persons of Roman citizens, from their thoughts, from their eyes, from their ears. So he's saying Roman citizens shouldn't even think about the cross, shouldn't even look at the cross, shouldn't say anything about the cross. Listen, for not only the actual fact and endurance of all these things, but the bare possibility of being exposed to them, the expectation, the mere mention of them even, is unworthy of a Roman citizen and of a free man. He's saying a decent person at the time of Jesus would not even utter the words crucifixion. Would not even think about the cross. It was so humiliating. And now today, right? 2,000 years later, we wear them around our necks. Some of you, I go into your homes and you've got many of them hanging on your walls, maybe hanging on your rear view mirror. We wear them on our shirts. And at the time that this was written, they said, it's so disgusting. It's so pitiable. It shouldn't even be, the word of the cross shouldn't even be on a person's lips. And to make matters worse for the Jewish people, crucifixion had another meaning. Death by crucifixion meant that you were literally cursed by God. Deuteronomy 21 verse 22 says, and if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and if he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. So not only was this a despicable way to die, it was a shameful way to die, but the Jewish people saw this. This was evidence that God has cursed you. And the Romans, knowing this, they wanted crucifixion not to be something done privately. Like, you know, the death sentence that's carried out occasionally, you know, in the United States in certain, in certain places behind closed doors. We rarely, anybody rarely hears about it. No, no, no. They wanted this to be done in full view of people. So the full weight, so people could look and see. And as you're going to the market, your kids could look and see. Now, this is weird because in our society, other than video games and maybe some movies, our kids stay far removed from death. In America, most kids stay far removed from death. They don't even think about it. They don't even think it's a possibility. When I was in Kenya, I was shocked as, the, as they were slaughtering the goat for us to eat that later that day. They did it right there in full view. And there's little three-year-old kids eating their mango, checking it out. Watching this, watching this throat, be, you know, the throat be cut on this goat. Watching the life extinguish out of an animal right in front of them. And it's kind of the same thing here. They, they wanted, the Romans wanted this to be done in public view. They wanted people to witness other human beings die and that to strike absolute fear in their heart to be subjugated to Rome and never think of trying to overthrow them. And so to make this full spectacle of the thing, they would take the cross member of the, of the cross, the, the, the horizontal part of the cross, and they would bring it to the prisoner and they would make them carry the cross member up through, it was a, you know, 
the way of the cross. It was just through this, the longest way through the streets out until this hill called Golgotha or Calvary. And they would have to carry this through the busy streets. Think livestock, think kids, think people peeking their eyes out the window, businessmen going about their business, things moving and shaking and things going on. This is a busy time of year, celebrating the Passover, lots of people, and this disgusting man, this man who is bloody from the tip of his head to the bottom of his feet with his mock crown of thorns, his body just shredded open, and he's having to carry this cross up to this place called Golgotha. They wanted everyone to see just what happens to a man who tries to overthrow Rome, who says, who dare says that he's a king. They wanted to see, they wanted everyone to see this king, another king, get squashed under, under the boot of the Roman military. And in verse 21, we see, and they compel, compel the passerby. Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus. They compelled him to carry his cross. Now, what we see here is Jesus is too weak to carry his own cross. Weak, no doubt, from the night of no sleep that he had before this. He was praying in the garden. He got arrested. He got in the, thrown into this kangaroo court, this mock trial, then brought first thing in the morning before Pilate. Uh, Pilate gave him over. He's had no sleep the night before. Pilate had him scourged. He's beaten to an inch of his life. Now he's brought up at 9 a.m. and he's begin, beginning to be crucified. He's exhausted. He's close to death. And he cannot carry the weight of his own cross. And so the Romans, just by happenstance or providence, they see this man, Simon of Cyrene. They say, hey, would you carry his cross? Simon of Cyrene, that's North Africa, more than likely. Simon was a, was a black man. From, he was from Northern Africa. What's interesting here is they, ha, they throw in the name of his sons. It's very interesting. We have, we have very little history in the name of his sons, but if you, if you remember from when we first started studying the book of Mark, uh, most scholars believe that Mark was writing this gospel specifically to the church in Rome, and Rome was under persecution. And they think Mark, as he's writing this, he includes the name of, of Simon's sons because we have, rep, we have evidence of one of these sons being a member, or a, at least a person of this name, being a member of the church in Rome at the time this was written. So, so many historians, many scholars believe this is kind of saying, so here's the evidence, go talk to his sons. Like Simon, he, he, they, he had to help carry the cross. If you doubt this happened, or if you doubt how this happened, here's, just go talk to Rufus, Right? Talk to Alexander and Rufus. They're there, trusted members of your church. Talk to them about it. And it seems that this experience for Simon had, what does that tell us? If his sons were believers, right, down the road. This experience of carrying the cross of Jesus had some kind of profound influence in his life that he was looking in the face of this man who'd been condemned to die. He was seeing this bloody, broken man making his way to the cross, and he witnessed this man die in the way that we're going to learn how he died. And this had a profound impact on his life. Like I said, this impact, what we're going to see today is going to do something to us. It's going to make us maybe more like Simon, more, it's going to soft, it's soften us, it's going to break us, or maybe it's going to harden us, kind of like we see with the, many of the Roman guards. And they eventually now bring Jesus up to this place called Golgotha, the place of a skull. You can Google this if you want. You can see the, the rock 
outcropping on the hill. It kind of, it's got dark spots and it, it literally kind of looks like a giant face, giant skull. It was this high spot outside the city where everyone could see what was going on. Jesus didn't die in a back room in secret. He died outside the gates in full view of humanity. In verse 23, it says, They offered him wine mixed with myrrh. This is kind of a painkiller. But if you remember, at the Last Supper, Jesus said, when he drank of the wine, he said, this is the last time I'll drink of the cup of the vine until I drink it again at my father's. Basically saying, when I get to heaven, in the new heavens, the new earth, then I'm going to drink wine again with you. And so as they offer him this painkiller, this wine mixed with myrrh, he denies it and he won't take it. The psalmist in Psalm 69, 21, written hundreds of years before this says, they gave me poison for food and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. And then in verse 24, and they crucified him. We've, we've seen how Mark doesn't, he's not very verbose. He, 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 he has this economy of style. He wants it short and sweet and let's get to the point. And so he says in three words, and they crucified him. And they divided, he says, his clothes among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And they crucified him. They attached. What does that mean? That means they brought him up and they attached the cross member. It would be laying on the ground and they attached the cross member to the vertical member of the cross. And they lay Jesus' body on it. His already broken and bleeding and busted body upon this old, rugged, wooden cross that no doubt has been used many times before and has been reserved for Barabbas. That we already saw this last week. And then they nailed Jesus' wrists and feet to this cross. In the 1960s, archaeologists around Jerusalem uncovered a tomb who had, of a man who had been crucified. And they uncovered this tomb and they found this man. And he had been crucified actually with his heels nailed to the side of the cross. Through the bones of his heels into the side of the cross. And he was tied, his hands were actually tied. This would have been an excruciating way to die, but it, it wasn't the nails that killed him, nor was it the nails that killed Jesus. We know that his, he was nailed to the feet and through the hands. We don't know if that's you know, specifically the wrists or where his feet were nailed, but it wasn't the nails that killed him. I mean, that's brutal to think about, but it's actually the inability to support yourself to breathe that brought about the death and crucifixion. It's one of the things that made it so excruciating, so exhausting, and so scary. See, eventually a person would hang and sag, and they didn't have the strength to hitch themselves up and take a breath, and so they would literally just asphyxiate. They would just either drown in their own blood, unable to breathe. They would suffocate. It was a long, slow death that most of the time took several days. And Mark tells us that the Romans then go about dividing up his garments. They cast lots for them. Think about this. Jesus is dying and they're laughing and giggling and throwing dice for who gets his clothes. Now, I want you to hear, what does that say? 
They already stripped him of his. They already stripped him of the of the robe, and they put his clothes on him. And now they've already stripped him. They stripped him naked. So Jesus is naked at the most with a loincloth, possibly. But most people say they stripped him naked to humiliate him. So the Son of God is hanging naked on a cross, broken, bleeding, barely able to die, while Roman soldiers are jeering and mocking and laughing and throwing dice for his clothes. And again, the psalmist, Psalm 22, David says, they divided my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. So we get the sense that this is all the fulfillment of something that had been written hundreds of years ago. This isn't something that's happening by happenstance. Every detail is being fulfilled that prophesied what was going to happen to the Messiah, the suffering servant in the Old Testament. And Mark tells us that it's, uh, let's just keep reading. I'll just keep reading. And it was the third hour. That means it's 9 a.m. the way they reckon time. It's the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him. So they would have nailed the inscription on top of his cross. So the inscription says, the king of the Jews. And with him, they crucified two robbers. Two men that were more than likely in the insurrection. One of them on his right and one of them on his left. It's 9 a.m. and Jesus is being crucified between two robbers. Isaiah 53 says, He was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many and makes the intercession for transgressors. He's numbered with the transgressors. Jesus is standing in the midst of two sinners or hanging in the midst of two sinners. And everyone, this is where it really gets dark. And everyone is throwing their worst at him. The hatred of humanity is just thrust upon him. Look at verse 29. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, shaking their heads, and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another saying, he saved others and yet he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the king of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Everyone, listen to this, everyone that sees the way here, the way that Jesus is dying. They see his mutilated body. They see his mock crown. They see his nail pierced flesh. They see him mounted upon a Roman cross. And this is what they say. If you were really God, we couldn't do this to you. What a joke. As they smack him in his face, as they spit on him, as they mo- if you were really God, we couldn't do this to you. We couldn't crucify God. What a joke. If you were really God's son, you could stop us. 
And yet there you are, hanging naked. Whose God is this naked God hanging, crucified by the Romans? What a joke. Another God destroyed by the Romans. Another culture wiped out by the Romans. The Romans just continuing to expand. Anybody that stands against them, another king under a Roman boot. What a joke. If you were God's son, could we spit on you? Could we mock you? Never in a million years. If you're really the son of God, come off that cross and prove it, and then we'll believe Now, this is the God of the American dream right here. This is the God that we want. We want a God who's maybe hanging on a cross when everything, see, this is what happens, right? And every single movie that you like, this is the moment where it looks like it's dark. It looks like there's no way out. It looks like Rocky's going to be knocked out. Right? And then what we want in our imaginations is we want at the last second he's about to die and Jesus plucks his hands from the nails and plucks his feet from the nails and gets down and shoots lightning out of his eyeballs and takes out every Roman guard there and says, I am king and watch me rule this earth. That's what we want. We watch shows, right, that that depict this kind of mentality. We watch shows like A House of Cards with this man, this president, right? President Frank Underwood, who, who goes into a church and he looks up at the face of Jesus and he says, I don't understand you and I don't like you. And he spits in his face and he says, the Old Testament God, I understand. A God of wrath, I get, I understand. But a God of weakness, what a joke. What do you offer? Love? And he spits in his face. That's the God that we want. We don't want a God that dies on the cross. None of us do. How do I know this? Because I think we do the same exact thing that these people do anytime suffering enters our life. Anytime we have to go through something we don't understand, that the world would look at us and go, hmm, something's going on poorly in that person's life. Something's not going well in that person's life. Anytime we go through something really difficult, I think we say the same thing to Jesus. We say, Jesus, aren't you looking? If you were really God's son, wouldn't you do something? How could you let me go through this? How could you let me lose a child? How could you let me get cancer? How could you let this happen to me? How could you let my children walk away? How could you do this? If you're really God's son, do something. Why don't you stop this, Jesus? Why do you let this go on? See, but this, this is why it's not enough just to know what Jesus suffered. It's not enough to know what he suffered. You have to know why he suffered. This is what Hebrews 12, 2 says. Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, listen to this, for the joy of, that was set before him endured the cross. Despising the shame. They couldn't, that means it was a shameful situation. He's naked, bloody, bleeding. Everyone's mocking him. (laughs) You're not God. We couldn't do this to God. And he despises the shame. Doesn't 
Not that he didn't feel it, but it doesn't move him. Despising the shame and is seated now at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. That's fascinating. Now, what was that joy? Now, I could go on and on. That's a whole sermon. It's a countless joy in many different ways that what Jesus accomplished on the cross, but in a few ways here. One, it was to please God. Satisfying the wrath of God, satisfying the justice of God, it pleased God completely. Second, it was to rescue sinners. Jesus stayed on the cross to rescue sinners. That was the joy that was set before him. And it was also to be one with us in our suffering. That no one can look at Jesus and go, you don't know how I feel. If anybody who understands the cross, you can never say, I'm suffering more than you, Jesus. You don't understand how I hurt. You don't understand how I'm suffering right now. The Christian God is the only God who suffers. The only God with wounds is to be one with us and our suffering, and then to be exalted at the right hand of God as our God-man advocate and high priest. But this is the point. Hear this. Please hear this this morning. What other people saw as a clear sign that Jesus was not God's son was actually the very sign that he was the son of God. The thing that people looked at and go, clearly, he, if you were God, we couldn't do this to you. It was actually the very sign that he was the son of God. Who else could endure such torture without coming down? Dads, you, you've, you've ever given a free shot to your kids, right? Let your kids take a shot. There's a point where you stop doing that. Right? Because they learn your weak spots, right? They learn your weak spots or they get stronger and you stop that, right? Why? You have the power. You can control them and stop them. You're not going to take it all the way, right? He pulls out a knife. You're being, oh, oh, oh. But Jesus, think about this. Jesus is on the cross. He has all the power. He could pull himself off the cross and shoot lightning from his eyeballs. It's funny, but he could actually do it. Remember, just. A year before, he spoke to the the rain and the winds and the lightning, and they shut up. He could do it. He could create an earthquake that swallowed them all whole right there. See, only God, only God has the love inside him, the the strength of character, the self-control to actually stay on the cross and experience the shame without coming down. Who else could you despise the shame and let the people that you created spit on you and mock you and emotionally torture you? Listen how C.S. Lewis describes it in The Four Loves. Quote, he creates the universe. Already foreseeing, or should we say seeing because there are no tenses in God, The buzzing cloud of flies about the cross, the flayed back press against the uneven stake, the nails driven through the medial nerves, the repeated incipient suffocation as the body droops, 
the repeated torture of back and arms, as it is time after time for breath's sake hitched up. If I dare the biological image, God is a host who deliberately creates his own parasites. He causes us to be that we may exploit and take advantage of him. Herein is love. This is the diagram of love himself, the inventor of all loves. See, I find myself often asking God to to do two opposing things for me at the same time. I don't know if you're the same way. I'm sure you are. I pray, God, make me humble, but don't humiliate me. I pray, God, give me self-control, but don't put me in situations that need it. I pray, God, increase my awareness of your love, but don't let me suffer. I I don't want anything bad to come into my life, but I want to know you more, and I want to experience your acceptance, and I want to experience your power in greater ways. Now, what if, think of, this this is the thought. What if the only way you could be any different than you are today. What if the only way was for you to go through something and suffer something that you don't want to do? That's exactly what our text is showing us. Listen, people are looking at Jesus. If your God come down, if your God come off that cross, Listen, this is what they say. If you come off the cross, we'll believe in you. And Jesus knows if I come off the cross, I can't save you. And you'll never believe in me. And he's the founder and the perfecter of our faith. And the only way to do that, to actually give us the faith to believe, is to be crucified and then resurrected three days later. And how many times in our life we want Jesus to come off the cross and perform a miracle and prevent us from suffering instead of having, like Jesus, to go through the cross and on the other side of the cross experience some sort of resurrection. Now I'm reminded of this today because six years ago yesterday, my family and I left the Quad Cities and moved to Omaha. And Acts 29, our network of churches told me, I had already started Sacred City Church, and they told me, close it down, stop it, move, go to a church planting residency. And that felt like death for us. That was death for us. No paycheck. My wife just had our second child. Moving, we've never lived outside the Quad Cities. Moving to a new city to be an intern, basically, after I'd been in ministry for about eight or nine years. Felt like death. And we had no idea what, God was going to do. And as I thought this week about what God has done in those six years, what I thought was death, the death of a dream, the death of a ministry, the death of a calling has been a resurrection, truly. And the lives of so many people through this church have been changed. Some of you right now are going through stuff that for, if you didn't have the gospel and if you didn't have the community that you have right now, you don't, how, how would you be living I talked to someone yesterday and they said we would be broke because community's been helping so much and this person's been helping and this person's been helping. We would be broke and we would be exhausted and at the end of ourselves. 
And I, I remember those days. I remember leaving and thinking, oh, Lord. See, this is the way of Jesus. He doesn't just rescue us from trouble all the time. Rescue us from. He rescues us through suffering, through the cross. This is the true love of Jesus. In order to save us, in order to change us and give us the happiness that he enjoys in himself. Because God is happy. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they live in a trinity of love. They love each other. They're happy all the time. And he wants to invite us into that. But in order to do that, listen, he has to stay on the cross. Is there something in you, you watch, hopefully in the next few weeks you'll watch The Passion of the Christ, or I haven't seen the new movie that's out. You know, and it's great. I don't want you to be like nostalgic when you watch it. You know, I want you to think about things, but think about what would you really want? Would you rather right now when Christ is on the cross, would you rather him blow up the cross and come off, turn into the Incredible Hulk and just demolish, demolish everybody? Like, is, is that what, you want a God who's strong? You want a God who crushes his enemies? instead of one who dies for them? See, that's the gospel, the, the, the God who crushes. That's the gospel of Frank Underwood. That's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no other way for Jesus to save us than to stay on the cross, to embrace the shame, to embrace the emotional pain, to embrace the physical pain. Now this is what that will do to you. First, if you despise it, if you look at this weakness of Jesus and it turns your stomach, it's going to make you more and more and more like the antagonists in the story. Maybe a little bit today and a little bit tomorrow and a little bit the next day, but over 15, 20 years, you'll be a cynic You'll be angry. You won't have any true community because you'll push, you, you never want to experience any weakness. You never want to experience any shame. You, you, that's rejecting the weak, naked, bloody Jesus. I don't want that Jesus. You'll be more of a mocker. You'll despise him and his apparent weakness. And you're going to avoid Jesus. You're going to avoid Jesus and you're going to avoid every situation that could bring about any of those little things. But if you look at the suffering of Jesus and it melts you. I love the thought that, you know, Mel Gibson, when he made The Passion of the Christ, you know, many people, when they make their own movies, they star in their own movies. And they said, do you want to play anybody? He says, I want to play one guy. I want to play the guy that, nail, that drives the nails into the hands of Jesus. And so you never see his face, but you see his hands. See, what's it saying? He's saying, I, I was a mocker. I hate weakness. I would have done the same thing if I would have been there. I would have been caught up in the spectacle of it. Think about this, guys. When you hear on the news, someone was shot by a police officer. You immediately, most of you, not all of you, most of you go, 
I wonder what he did wrong. Hmm. Probably shot at the cops, probably did this, probably did that, probably did this. But 2,000 years ago, they look up at the cross, they see a guy crucified. What do they say? Oh, I wonder what he did. Must have did something terrible. And Jesus is on the cross, sinless, innocent. And yet he's dying there for us. See, when you look at the suffering of Jesus and you see, I did that or he did that for me, it melts you. You see that this was the greatest act of love that was ever done. And listen, please, if you struggle to feel the love of God, like on a consistent basis, please think about this and listen to this. No one has ever loved you like this. No one has went so far and stayed so faithful to you as Jesus. When all, literally all hell and all humanity was coming against him and people were telling him to give up and just save yourself, he stayed. Every reason to get down. Nobody's been faithful to you like that. Nobody's absorbed wrath and absorbed hurt like that for you. It's unbelievable. It's the myth that became fact, as C.S. Lewis says. It's the truest story that's ever been told. With every reason to come off the cross, with every reason to deny us that we're there mocking him and we're there crucifying. And he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. No one has loved you like that. When you hurt somebody too many times, you know what they say? He did it on purpose. He knew it was going to bother me. He knew it. Did it on purpose. I'm done with that person. See, Jesus has loved you like nobody else has. Yeah, you did it on purpose. Yeah. You killed him. You crucified him. And he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. A person who brings that in to themselves and lets it melt them, that person will become more like Jesus more willing to go through suffering for others, more willing to embrace suffering without lashing out at God, softer, kinder, and yet with a spine like steel, self-control like you've never seen before, willing to stay in difficult situations when everyone says, you're cursed. God's against you. God's abandoned you. I finished with this last scripture. The same scripture I read earlier, but I'm going to read verse one as well. Hebrews 12.1, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, it means we've got a lot of examples that have gone before us. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Listen, looking to Jesus. How do you embrace suffering? How do you go through things that you never thought you'd have to go through? You put one foot in front of the other and you look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. 
despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of God. And this is the joy that we have on this side of the cross. We see Jesus going through this for the joy that was set before him and we get to see three days later that Jesus experienced some of that joy as he was resurrected with a brand new physical body and that is the promise for us. No matter what physical problem we're going through, no matter what suffering and what situation, there is an absolute end date for us and there's a new body and a new heavens and a new earth and an ultimate eternal joy that's waiting for us. Let us think about the cross these next few weeks. Let's meditate on it. Let's go deeper into it and ask Christ by the power of the Spirit to take the cross deeper into us. Let me pray. Father, when mankind thinks of stories about the gods, we think in power and pride. We think of gods coming to the earth and showing off and conquering enemies, and demanding worship. We don't think of a God who would send His Son to be a nobody, to gather a few disciples together, and to live with them in a community and on mission for three years, and then at the end of that three-year ministry, to go out like this, to be overpowered, by the government to be crushed and crucified and publicly shamed. The God who spoke the galaxies in existence hangs naked on a cross. The God who created trees to create the cross hangs on it himself. While the people he created look at him and said, if you were really God, we couldn't do this to you. There is no other story like yours. There is no other gods like you. The God of omnipotent power who humbles himself to be killed by his own creation, to redeem his creation back to himself. Thank you, God. And may that joy and that happiness that is eternally yours, may it fill our hearts this morning as your Holy Spirit pours it into us, as we feel an unearned love, an undeserved love. Anytime we ever doubt that you love us, if we don't say, prove it to me now by doing X, 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 or Y, or Z, we say, I know he loves me because he stayed on the cross. He didn't come down when he could have. He didn't conquer his foes. He let his foes conquer him. Would that give us strength in the moment of our suffering? In the moment of our pain and our weakness, Father, may we look to you, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. As we come to your table and as your body is broken when the bread and the bread and your blood that was spilled fills the cup, may we take that in, a, in, in memory of you and may we uh, take that as a means of grace and may the crucifixion and what you did on the cross and what you want to do in our lives through the cross may become more real to us in this moment. I pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.